0: How's everyone doing tonight? Okay, if we haven't met, my name is Andy. Uh, Me and uh, Camilla have been around here for a few years now and we're on the leadership team and it's just amazing privilege to be in front of you this morning and and worshiping with you. It's good to worship together, isn't it? It's one of the, I think, for me, that's been the like main thing that I've been looking forward to about coming back together and we've been doing this for maybe a couple months now. It's really that worshiping together, that, that thing that changes when you're around a group of people that we you know, things can shift and go in different directions. We were just, um, you know, speaking about in the pre-service prayer, like, God can really do anything in a meeting when we gather together and accept that he's in charge of the meeting and, and can do things. And it's, it's good to worship together. And I think the awesome thing about that is that worship actually produces something in us. We see pictures of worship in, in Revelation, we see pictures of what it's going to be like standing before for God and we see Him in all His glory and we're pretty much going to be face on the ground just saying holy, holy, holy in His throne room when we see Him. And we come to worship and we do worship in spaces like this not because we like to do it because it gives us warm fuzzies, we actually do it because He deserves all the glory and all the praise and all the worship, amen? We do it because it's, it's for Him, it's the de- declaration of what He's done. But God is so awesome that he's actually designed us to also get something from from worship. And I love it that no matter what's going on around us, worship brings us back to a central point in his presence. It brings us back to a knowledge that he's large, that he's in charge. You know, those lyrics that we sing that are on the screen, they're not just nice things to say about God, they're amazing truths about who he is what he's done, and who he's going to create us to be as well. It's amazing to worship together. And as we continue these services, and as we do these three times over the weekend, we've been discussing sort of in, in leadership meetings and different things of just like the importance of concentrating and being in God's presence. You know, even though times are shorter, even though things are more apart, we're like, what is the valuable thing that we can come and do, the really valuable thing that we want to concentrate on is being in, the God's, in being in God's presence. It's not just about good teaching. It's not just about seeing one another. It's actually coming together as a group of people and being in his presence. And the process of worshiping does that to us. Today I was, I was well, not today. This week, as I was asking God, Lord, what do you want me to share on? What do you want me to do? I, I, for There was an evening there where I... I was just like, God, I could do this, I got this idea, I got that idea, I got that. And what often happens with me when I'm, when I'm praying to God, the answer doesn't seem to come right away. A lot of the time, interestingly, the, the, the answer is sometimes the first thing on my mind when I wake up the next day after giving it to God. And on a morning this week, God just said, peace. And I knew it was from God. You know when God just says, says to you something and you know it's from Him? It was one of those moments. So tonight, I just want to talk about peace, and that's why I mentioned in worship as well. It brings us to a central point of being in peace, in God's peace. Now, the world views peace and gives peace in interesting ways. It's interesting for us to look at this today, because peace, if you ask people outside the church uh, today about what they thought peace meant, what would they probably say? It probably just means the absence of war, the absence of conflict. You know, if you're not at war, if you're not at, in strife with somebody else, you're at peace with them. For, for the Bible, for Jesus, for the, for the New Testament church and the, the, all throughout Israel's history, peace had so much more meaning to them. Peace was the word shalom for most of that time before they wrote it in Greek in the New Testament, and it was a different word, but shalom was this rich, interesting word that we don't, I don't even understand the full contents of. I think if you go to Israel today, people it's the greeting that people say to one another, but it means tranquility, it means perfection, it means peace. Sort of get your minds into sort of the Garden of Eden where God and man were at peace with one another. There was no barrier, there was no wall, there was even nakedness, whoops, but Maybe that's what they're saying when they say shalom to each other. Naked? No. I'm sure it's not. Take that out of the the word. Um, But it's different for our culture. We've lost some of that meaning. So today we're just going to go back and peel off some of the layers of what peace means. And I think it's going to be a rich word for us today. Because it it doesn't just fit nicely into the narrative of where we are as a culture. You know, the last few months have been bizarre, as you can recognize by our meetings. You know, we're still not out of it. And the next few months, we don't really know what's going to happen. It seems like you open the news every day and we're going forwards and then we're going backwards. To be at peace is a word that we want to concentrate on. But that's not the primary reason why I think God wants this. I think this is a central truth that God wants to add to us. You know, we live in a secular society in the West here. Our culture is, you know, is no longer based on the belief that God is at the center, that God has made the rules. We now sort of have advanced beyond that, what most people think. Most, we're now laying those ourselves. And different people notice how different cultures deal with suffering, There was one in my research this week of just looking at peace, there was a guy called Dr. Paul Brand, he's a Brit like me, and he he was an orthopedic surgeon and he spent the first half of his career living in India and dealing with leprosy and all sorts of other things and then on the second half of his career he moved to the United States. And at the end he observed this and he said this about how Suffering and pain affects different cultures. He said, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients live in a greater level of comfort here than in any place I have previously treated. But they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and seem far more traumatized by what they're going through. That's a stark contrast, is it? What this doctor is saying, who used to deal with leprosy in India and the, the, the social outcast that would make you, you know, that doesn't just affect you on a health level in India, that affects you on a societal level. You know, they have different hierarchies of society. The old class system is, is alive and well there, I believe. And the lepers would be the lowest of the low, the dirtiest of the dirt. And what this doctor is saying is when he came to the U.S. and served rich clients, rich patients, he says, they couldn't handle their suffering like these people could. Something was missing. You know, modern secular people, our society, we have a freedom to choose any meaning of life that we want. All religions um, would tell you what to live for, but our secular people, our society, we're free to choose anything we wish to live for. But the problem is... That whenever the secular world chooses something to be the central foundation of their life, the thing to live for, maybe you'd call it the purpose of their life, when that thing disappears, all hope is lost. And while we search for the next thing to centralize our life on, we distract ourselves with just entertainment and distraction until we land on the next thing, earthly thing. Jesus, in John 14, verse 25, he says this about peace and about the world. He's talking to his disciples here, and he says, "Peace I leave you with. I oh, sorry, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not at the as the world gives, do I give it to you? Not as the world gives, do I give to you? Jesus knows, even back in his day, where he was dealing with a, a Jewish world. You know, a more a much more central uh, on on God's plan." Um, People than we live in our societies. And he was saying, even this world cannot produce in you the peace that you're looking for. We know for us, if we examine our lives, we build peace based on what? Health, wealth, good relationships. We basically go through life trying to build security fences around our lives, we try and make security for ourselves. You know, with wealth now, I'm entering into my 30s, and like people are like, oh, you should start thinking about retirement. I'm like, what? A couple years ago, someone sold me life insurance. I'm like, what? I don't need life insurance. Maybe my kids do. Um, but all these things, we try and make good decisions, and we try and find peace in having a good plan. But what coronavirus and what we've discovered recently is the best laid plans, the most advanced societies on the face of the planet aren't into. Aren't protected from a fragile life, from fragile lives that we live. And those security walls that we try to build can sometimes be a false sense of security. They're good things, they're not bad things. We should seek health, we should seek wealth and good retirement plans and good savings accounts and things like that so we can be generous and good relationships. But we can't base our foundation on it as a core. Those security walls crumble when we base everything on it. And so we as a church, and I notice this in my own life, I need a doctrine of peace in my own life that conquers all these other things. That even when my bank account looks like it's in the red, that even when our relationships, people are far away, people are further away than you'd like like them to be, even when those things disappear, the central hope in life is not lost. And we need to get back to that. As I was thinking about, you know, Jesus and his disciples, I, I love to just think about the, the, the interactions that Jesus had with the people around him. And I was just thinking about this, pe- this thing of peace. There was a certain interaction that Jesus had with the disciples that came to me that I think is pretty funny. It's about the disciples, and it's pretty funny because they think they're about to die. And that's not funny for them in the moment, but it's kind of funny, and we can have a chuckle looking back at it a little bit. But in Mark 4, verse 35, um, there's a journey that Jesus and his disciples go in, and they basically cross an ocean to try and get to the other side um, as, as they travel. And it says this from 4, uh, Mark 4:35. It says, On that day when evening had come, so it was nighttime, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in their boat just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, the back of the ship, I shouldn't say ship, it was a boat, a fishing boat. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, on the cushion. There was apparently only one cushion on the boat. Um, But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?' And he awoke, probably looked around, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "'Peace, be still.' And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, "'Why are you so afraid?' Have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. Even after the peace came, they were filled with fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I think it's kind of funny to look at that situation because you're thinking about like this in, in modern terms. You're like, you know, Jesus has healed. He has preached. He has done signs and wonders in these times. Why were you guys so afraid? But I think we would be in exactly the same place. If your boss was asleep at the back of the ship and not worried about anything, and it seems like the world is crashing down on you, you're freaked out. But in an instant, Jesus awakens and deals with the situation at hand. It's this situation, while we can sort of chuckle at it and, and think it's an interesting antidote, it shows us some very real realities about how we can be exactly the same way with Jesus. And simply, I think the moral of the story, or the reason why the disciples were so afraid in that time, was what? It's because they had lost sight, or maybe they hadn't yet seen or realized who Jesus really was. They had lost sight. They could not see Jesus for exactly who he was. So they were perplexed and confused and thought they were on the brink of death. You know, we can do church, we can do connect group, we can do giving, we can do worship, we can do devotionals, we can, we can do prayer together, and we can still lose sight of who Jesus really is. And we can be in that boat next to Jesus because we believe Jesus is with us, he sent his Holy Spirit, we can be going through the storm, and we can be freaked out. But we know, and why worship is so key for us, the more we set our eyes on who he is and what he's done and what he has purchased for us, the less and less fear can rule and reign in our lives. In fact, if the disciples were in that boat and had a perfect understanding of who Jesus was, maybe they would have been able to sleep next to him. That seems ridiculous and crazy. Maybe just the motion of the boat itself would have been enough to freak them out. But there's this thing in my life as I read that story, you know what, if we had enough faith in Jesus, if we just had enough faith, we would be out to rest and relax in the midst of a huge storm like Jesus was. He knew perfectly who he was, and he was at ease. Jesus had so much peace that he was asleep. And as I was reading that, I was just thinking, you know, what's keeping us awake at night? You know, it's like that thing, you know, back to that quote of that doctor, you know, we in the modern world are, are, find little things far more harder than, than people who have much harder lives than we do sometimes. But what is that thing that keeps you awake at night? What is that storm that you're going through? What is that thing that just currently feels like it's too big? You know, when, wave, when you're out in the ocean and the waves are big, you can't see past them. You can't see the shore. You might be in the middle of the dark. What's keeping you awake at night? And what does Jesus want to say about that thing? In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says this. He says, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In me, you may have peace in talking about himself. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's not lost on me that there's very real situations in this room of pain and suffering. Those things that keep us away at night. For some of us, it's like, oh, I don't know what's for dinner. Maybe that's why I think. Um, but for some of us, there's very real things that keep us awake. You know, in this church alone, there's cancer, there's financial worries, there's families struggling in really real, real ways with mental health and trying to figure things out and the complexities of that and trying to go to different doctors and praying through it and not seeing success. Jesus doesn't deny there will be tribulation, and we don't have enough time to to explore this evening or this morning why why suffering exists. But all I know is that God Himself came and suffered alongside us. You know, every we we all know why suffering exists because sin came into the world. But that still perplexes us, doesn't it? Lord, why? Why can't you just wipe the slate clean? Why can't you just make everything better? Why? Okay, I get that it has to be bad, but why this bad? But God Himself who didn't deserve any of it, came and suffered alongside us. He didn't avoid it. Jesus experienced real sadness. He wept for John. He he swept blood before going to the cross. And he died that brutal death on the cross. God knows what it's like to lose a son. There are people in the church who know what it's like to lose a child. So where does this peace come from? A part of it comes from in our lives by knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. You know, at the end of John 16, verse 33, he says, But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus in that storm with the disciples was, Take heart, I have overcome the storm. Why are you worried about the storm? I've overcome it. Jesus chose to, in that time, to quench the storm. Sometimes the storm continues to rage in our lives. But we need to know that Jesus has overcome it. We need to know that not just that he's overcome it, but that we are in him. In Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Who made us both one. We're in him. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It says in Philippians 4.7, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, your minds in Christ Jesus. The other thing we need to know and that the Bible talks about often is that we need to know that future glory is coming. It says in Romans 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, this is the writer Paul who is not unfamiliar with suffering and being locked up for the kingdom and for being shipwrecked and all these things. I consider the suffering of this present time not worth even comparing to the glory that is coming. Church, we need to understand the glory that is coming, right? That's why we worship. That's why we need to understand those worship songs. That's why we need to sing loudly and boldly because worship in our lives reaffirms that truth again and again and again and again. We need to continue to do those things. We need to continue to try and meet together. Just as I finish up here, and there was one, one particular book in the Bible, uh, 1 Peter, it's in the New Testament, again, written by one of Jesus' disciples. Peter's talking to a persecuted church. He's talking to a church that is really familiar with suffering, that is really familiar with getting the short end of the stick that is really familiar of the inconvenience that Christianity has put on some aspects of their lives. I mean, Christianity has done amazing things for them, obviously. But Christianity, in some respects, has caused persecution. At the end of his letter, in summation of sort of everything I'm saying before you today, he says this in 1 Peter 5 from verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour resist him resist the devil firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you have suffered after you have suffered a little while The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's amazing. We need to humble ourselves before an almighty God. Again, these are people who for most of us who have experienced far more pain and loss than we ever had. (laughs) It seems we can think about these things and like, well, that doesn't really work, does it? Does that really work? No, these people knew they had been through it. Humble ourselves. That, that piece of humility declares that Jesus, I don't understand, but I know you've got it. That's what Jesus wanted from the disciples in the boat. It's like, you don't have to understand everything. you just got to trust that I've got it. Under the mighty hand of God, we've got to realize that God has a mighty, mighty hand. We don't know the cards that he's holding we don't know what he's planning for tomorrow or the testimony that he's building through our lives or the people that he's going to affect through us. At the proper time, you may be exalted. We need to cast our anxieties onto him. How many times do we try just to cast our anxieties onto something else that's trying to go and try and fix us or distract ourselves and just try and think, I'm not going to think about that thing. I'm just going to think about this other thing. No, we need to take the things that are anxious for us. It's not. It's not unbiblical to have anxieties. It's okay, but you've got to give it to God. That's where He wants it to go. The enemy is looking for people. The enemy is wanting to devour. So be firm and be close to God. We know that other believers are going through the same things as us. And as obscure as it sounds, we know that this is a little while. Seems like a long while. I haven't. It seems like a long while. People who are going through years, decades of pain in their life. It seems like a long while, but one day it won't. One day, standing before his presence, it won't. We don't stop praying for healing. We won't stop praying for hope. We won't stop praying for situations to change. But the root of our foundation of hope can change now. It can change this evening. It can change over the weekend. It can change as we focus our attention on God the creator once again. That God would even reconcile us to eternal glory is amazing. So just as maybe the worship team come back up and, and Mike comes up here, just once we get to worship, just cast your anxieties onto God. What's keeping you awake at night? What is the storm that's raging in your lives? God wants to minister to it. He wants to increase trust. He wants to increase purpose. And He wants to see you through it. Amen.